Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for what would be that for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Lord, we pray that you would guide our thoughts and our feelings tonight. We know that there are so many distractions that come and the enemy, the world, and even our own flesh wants to reign supreme and take over our thoughts and our feelings. And we ask, Lord, that you would use your word tonight to hone our thoughts, to temper our feelings so that we might be people who think and feel after you in the way that you would want us to, in the way that you call us to. Lord, with a text like this, we pray that you would help us to have clarity and there can be confusion about this particular topic of leadership, Lord. And so we pray that you would give us understanding into what you would have us know from this text, Lord. Ultimately, we love you and we thank you for the radical salvation that you've given to us. And we ask, Lord, that in light of that salvation, we would worship you here this evening in your name. Amen. All right, it's right here just at the end of the book. And you know the tumultuous tale that this has been, right? I mean, ups, 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 and down, down, downs here in the book of Hebrews, man. He has been one who has taken us to the heavenlies in the person of Jesus Christ and seen how amazing this being who is our Savior actually is, only to turn around and come to the lowest of lows and rebuke the church for their continual and an insistent rebellion against the word that's been taught to them and against Christ, their very own Savior. Right? You remember the story. This group of Jewish Christians living in Rome has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and in embracing the gospel have turned away from their past, from their Judaism, towards Jesus and worship of him, life within the church, Leaving behind that Judaism, they left behind their families, their friends, sometimes their businesses, sometimes even worse than that, their very lives were threatened, their property was plundered. We have seen their homes had been vandalized. And all in all, some of this was too hard for these Hebrew Christians. And rather than doubling down and following Christ all the harder, they decided, man, this is just too difficult. And some of them were turning back to Judaism and Judaism mixed with some mysticism and all kinds of weirdness. They were leaving the faith and turning towards. Because frankly, if you leave Jesus Christ, what do you have to go to, right? 
That's the entire argument of the book of Hebrews. If you leave Jesus, what are you going to turn to? Why? Why would that be the point of the book? In the very beginning in the garden, God placed not only all kinds of wonderful plants and all of the animals, but he placed man there. And in placing man in this garden, he made a covenant with this creation of his. I will be your God so long as you follow and obey my law. And the law was singular, right? In the garden, it was pretty much anything goes except don't eat of this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, the next not even page we turn, where do we find Adam hanging out and Eve with him there over by this tree? And we know the story. They partook. They fell into sin and broke the covenant that God had made with them. They violated God's law. And Adam, in doing so, brought down all of humanity with him. Everybody. We are not just sinners because we commit acts of sin. That is a true thing. But we are sinners because we are related to Adam, which is why we act out in sin. See, I have within my makeup a sinful nature that I inherited from my parents, who inherited it from their parents, who inherited it from their parents. Ad nauseum back to Adam. And because of that, we all live in this fallen state. So we're guilty twofold. One, violating the covenant of God in Adam. And two, acting out that rebellion in our own lives as God's law is written on our hearts and we reject it and turn away from it. And we do all kinds of manner of sin and evil, whatever it might be. We know it. We know it because every single one of us understands experientially, if you will, the word guilt. So what are we going to do? What does a humanity do? What, does, what, what do people do? What do beings do who comprehend, who think logically, rationally, who experience life, who understand the law of God and understand we have rebelled against it? What do we do? Well, we have to turn to God and say, Only you can redeem me. And God throughout the Old Testament has provided his law over and over and over again, as it were, saying, here's my holy standard. Here's my righteous standard. Here's who I am as God. And all the while that law was intended as it was given by God to show us our deficiency and our desperate need for someone to swoop in and pick us up and save us from our sins. Someone, as it were, like Ezekiel, comes along and there's dry, dead bones on the ground and he breathes in as to life to them as he preaches the word of God. <clears throat> and those bones come together and grow skin and stand up and life is breathed into them. That's the position we find ourselves in as people. So why is Jesus so great? Why is he so good? Because he is the one who has come into your dead life my dead life, and has said, no, you're not a rebel anymore, you're mine. 
You're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And it's taken me, probably by my collar, maybe by my ear, who knows, doesn't matter, and has dragged me into his kingdom as he said, you are no longer a rebel against me, has taken out my heart of stone and put within me a heart of flesh, of love and a desire for the Lord. New affections, new life, new joys, new passions. And this Jesus Christ has taken me from death and put me into his kingdom of life. And he has said, you are no longer a rebel against me, but I have made you mine through my death on the cross, burial and resurrection. Because Jesus Christ lived an absolute perfect life. Perfect. Perfect. Have you lived an hour of your life perfect? I haven't. I managed to get through a minute and I think back and go, oh, there's a couple there. Even when I'm by myself, how much trouble can I get in? (laughs) Really? It turns out an awful lot because Jesus, when he points it out in Matthew chapter 13, pardon me, Matthew chapter 5 and 6, even my own thought life is inconsistent with the thought life of God. And if I've looked at a woman or lusted after somebody else's stuff or have lied even in my own or had hatred against somebody, I might as well have done it to them because I'm just as culpable because that's where my heart is. And Christ had none of that. He was tempted in all points as we are. The book of Hebrews told us that in chapter 4, remember? All points as we are and yet without sin. That's amazing. He stood on the last couple of days before his crucifixion and all of the legalists, right? All of the Sadducees and Pharisees were coming against him and they were criticizing him and rebuking him and questioning him. And they were looking for a chink in his armor, right? They were looking for a weakness that they could exploit. But Christ stands up at the end of all of their scrutiny and says, Which one of you accuses me of sin? And everyone stood there like Job, putting their hand over their mouth, silent because they had nothing to say against him. When Christ died on the cross, you see, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, in committing no sin, had no reason to die and should not have died. But there on the cross, what God did is God poured out all of his wrath, all of his judgment, all of his condemnation, all of his just anger on Jesus Christ and punished Jesus for my sins. He treated Jesus as if he was me so he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect life. That's the great exchange. That's what gives Christ the authority, the power, the, the, the right to come in and take me from my deadness and bring me into newness of life. It's by virtue of his atoning, his dying, his suffering for my sins. And so he took me from this place of dead, deadness, breathed life into me and gave me new passions, a heart, and So the argument in the book of Hebrews, you see, 
is you Hebrews, you know this, you know this, you know this. You lived under the law. You lived under the sacrificial system. For goodness sake, you were going and killing goats and lambs to try to get right with God. And here Jesus Christ comes along and he dies. So all of that is irrelevant anymore because it all pointed to him. And once he has come, it no longer is in place because he fulfilled all of the types, all of the shadows, all of the signs that pointed forward to Christ. And so Hebrews, you have Jesus. You have Jesus. You have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, and it gets a little hard for you, and you turn your back on him and go to something else, what hope is there for you? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? You're going to, for the sake of a short period, a, a whiff, a breath of a time in your life, going to say, this is too hard. I'm going to do something else for a time and deny Christ and turn your back on eternal redemption? There's no redemption given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved but Jesus Christ. So if you turn your back on him, you're turning back on your very own soul. That makes no sense, beloved. And so when we come to this text right here, understand this is the context, right? The high highs and the low lows have all been a leader of these people within the church there in Rome amongst these Jewish Christians saying to them, don't do it, don't do it. Love Jesus, follow him. He's worth it. He's the chief, he's the best of all beings. Follow Jesus. And when we come to this text, we see obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. Before we get to the obey and submit, I want to look at that phrase, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As a pastor, as a leader in the church, you know, it's not something that I was like, this is going to be a real good life choice. <laughs> My wife laughs. <laughs> I have this compulsion from within that I really, frankly, can't explain. And it sounds a little mystical and a little weird, I'm honest, if I try to explain it. But I have to pastor. I have to preach. I have to teach. Even knowing that I'm going to one day have to give an account. My responsibility, Brian's responsibility as pastors, we have a singular purpose. When I say that, that means you should listen up. Because everything else that we do is extemporaneous to this one singular purpose. My job is to get you ready to meet Jesus. Brian's job is to get you ready to meet Jesus. That includes praying for you. And I do regularly pray for each and every one of you. Almost on a daily basis. I don't want to say daily because that'd probably be a lie because I'm sure I've gone days without praying. But I try to every single day pray for everybody. I preach the word. 
I preach the word because this is what matters to form you into the image of Christ. To get you ready to meet Jesus, you need this book. It contains everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so that's why I'm not up here with my own ideas, my own inventions. It's why, like I said, I think maybe it was the last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, I'm really a one-trick pony. I've just got the Bible. I'm just going to keep going through it and keep talking about it and keep pointing you to Jesus. It's why when I pray, I say, Lord, may we walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. It's why I would sit, and if you're struggling with some sin, I would counsel with you and try to provide some practical ways to help you to either overcome or to endure through that sin, even though some sins uh, linger with us a long, 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 long time. Sometimes we don't see much victory over those things. But pastors are here to help you to get ready to meet Jesus And in doing that, I'm going to be right with you along the way because I'm someday going to meet Jesus as well. So everything we do in the church, the warp and woof of our existence as a church and us as pastors is to prepare us to meet Jesus one day because we're all going to die. (laughs) Unless we get raptured, which could happen, but maybe not. It might happen for others down the road. One way or another, though, it doesn't make a difference, does it? Because we are going to meet Jesus one day. Look with me at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5 verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then between the throne and the four living creatures and among those elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken that scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, all fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is what I'm preparing you for. The job of the pastor is to preach the gospel over and 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 over again to pray for you. And in doing everything I do, pointing you to Jesus Christ, preparing you for this day, 
where you will stand before Jesus Christ and he will stand and we will all fall down on our faces before him in worship and praise, in joy, in the absolute greatest bliss we can possibly imagine. My responsibility is to get you ready to meet Jesus. I'm keeping watch over your souls. You see? That's what that phrase means. Look at 1 Peter. It's just a couple of pages this way in your Bible, in front of Revelation. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five. So I exhort, verse one, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, read elder, read pastor. They're synonymous. As a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those over in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So my responsibility is to shepherd the flock, right? Jesus Christ has used that um, language of shepherding and sheep routinely throughout his ministry. So it's not unfamiliar language to those of us who have read the Bible through. But he's encouraging us in light of Jesus Christ and the way he shepherds and him being the good shepherd, that I am to shepherd the flock. I am to keep watch over your souls. And I'm to do it not under compulsion, but willingly. There's lots of churches that struggle with you know, they have these pastors and they're basically hirelings. And because they're hirelings, what that means is that certain families within the congregation have the pastor's ear because they know those are the big givers. And whatever the big givers are going to say to them, hey, you should preach on this maybe sometime. Hey, do you ever think about talking about this? I think you were a little too heavy handed on this point. What's that pastor going to do as a hireling? And these people are paying him. Well, he's going to have their best interests in mind. So I'm not to minister out of compulsion. You see that kind of compulsion. Whereby I fear pulling the money out. Good news, we don't have a lot. So (laughs) that isn't a big problem. (laughs) But I'm to do it willingly. Believe me, I am so willing as a pastor to pastor people. And to shepherd them. Not for shameful gain and not domineering over those in your charge, but rather being an example. Not domineering. Now, we come back to these words in our passage, obey and submit. And some people, me included, I'll be honest, have the tendency to hear those words and have us overarching domineering. Right? Here he's saying don't be domineering, but yet at the same time, the congregation is to obey and submit to the leaders. Why? Why? Well, first of all, it isn't domineering for me to go to Arthur and to say, hey, buddy, you know what? I see this. You should you know, maybe pray about this and maybe do this. If there's a particular thing going on. 
And it's, it's my responsibility to go to someone and to do that. And obedience and submission should be the response that is elicited. The reason why is because I really do have your best interest in mind. Okay? I'm preparing you for something greater. Now, this is a crude analogy, but track with me, please. Okay? I played water polo in high school. Okay? Can you picture that? No, don't. (laughs) But I did. And I had a coach, and his name was Scott. And I had another coach, and his name was Eric. Scott was a really good player. He was on the national team for some time, and he was a really, really good water polo player. But he wasn't the greatest coach. He would kind of more flow into a a conversation, flow into a practice. And he would kind of say, hey, you know, and kind of help you along and guide you. Eric was more of a military kind of guy. And he would come in and say, you, Mathers, here, do this, there, that, this. And I can, you can understand which coach we preferred to coach us. <laughs> it's always Scott. But Eric gave us discipline and he led us. Now, all of this preparation was to get us ready for something greater, right? All of this was to perform in a game. All of this was to perform in a setting where we were going to do something greater than we were doing in practice. And the goal, the end goal, was to win the league championship, right? Right, that's the, the end goal. And if you can go further, to go further. But that's really the goal. So, there were times and ways where I did not want to obey and submit <laughs> to my coaches. But it was in my best interest to do it because they were preparing me for something greater. Now, like I said, that's a crude analogy, but you understand it, I think. Everybody here gets that. This is something so much greater because eternity is at stake. And so if I were to come to you, which I very rarely do, honestly, because as a pastor, I believe in the word of God. I believe in prayer. I believe in regular fellowship, all being effectual, meaning forming you and shaping you and guiding you into the place where you're going to be more ready to meet Jesus. Love him more when you walk out than you did when you came in. But from time to time, every single one of us experiences an acute sin that needs instant attack or needs somebody to come alongside us and help us with this particular issue because it's way bigger than other things that we deal with. That's the realm of obedience and submission to the leadership. It isn't as if we're like going to drop the hammer and be like, all right, there's a whole lot of, li-, you know, and then I roll the list out for you guys to start following. You better submit or Jesus is going to be pissed, you know, kind of thing. No, I have a care for your soul. I have to give an account. Someday I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and he's going to say to me, well, How well did you do shepherding my sheep? That, believe me, sends a shiver up my spine. (laughs) There's a reason why I can, and, and I think Brian would agree with me, why we can stay here doing what we're doing for more than a decade when there's no money, small group, people get discouraged and leave, and 
split happening and, you know, these kind of things that are frankly real traumatic and so devastating and emotional. Why would we keep doing it? Because we really believe, number one, we're going to have to give an account, but number two, that we do care about the souls who are here. So somebody asked me one time, you know, well, you know, you got a small church. What's the smallest you've been? And I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe five, maybe six. And they laugh like, well, how could you do that? Well, this is why. Because <laughs> I believe in the power of the word of God. And I believe that he has given me responsibility, even over a small, tiny little group, to keep watch over your souls. And someday I'm going to have to give an account. And believe you me, one person is enough to be very, very, very wise in how I handle this kind of instruction if I have to stand before God and give an account because you are his, you are not mine. Then there's some instruction to the congregation. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Thank you for... <laughs> for submitting to this particular instruction, probably without even knowing it's there. For the most part, it, it is a joy to pastor Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship. But frankly, it wouldn't be to your advantage if all of a sudden a little group got together and started nitpicking. And I've seen churches destroyed because of that. So we all, as we're worshiping the Lord together under the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a leader, my responsibility is to help prepare you to meet Jesus. And I think you want to be prepared to meet Jesus. Right? I think so. Right? That's kind of why you're here, I hope. Pray for us. Pray for us. If you don't do, I'm, I'm, I'm never going, well, we, we might get to a passage on tithing someday. And I might have to teach on it. It's the worst thing, Brian can tell you. So I'm never going to get up here and I'm going to say, you got to tithe, buddy. I'm never going to do that. But I am going to get up here and I am going to beg you to pray for me. I'm going to plead with you. Will you please pray for me? Pray for my family. Pray for Brian. Pray for his family. Would you do that regularly? Be in the habit and, and maybe just, you know, think about put something on the refrigerator so when you open it in the morning to get your orange juice or milk or whatever it is, just stop and pray for me. Pray for Brian. Tag a little something up so that you would be in regular prayer for us because frankly, it's difficult to do this from time to time. And if we have the prayer support of our church and we have the people around us who we know are pointing us back to Christ, it's all worth it. In Romans chapter 15, Paul, he's writing to this church that he really loves, but he says this in Romans chapter 15, um, in verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive in your prayers, work at it, Make an effort to do it. I'm not, I understand. Prayer's hard. <laughs> it's hard to get in that mindset. You know, I have to think of 
you know, set aside regular times where I'm going to be in prayer. And I, throughout my day, I kind of have a running conversation with God, and that's wise and helpful and good too. But when it comes to prayer, we need to make an effort to do it, to strive to do it. And I would ask that we would strive together in doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So many passages where Paul comes back to and he says this, Ephesians chapter 6. And you know that passage there at the end of Ephesians that talks about putting on that whole armor of God. Well, at the end, after he talks about all those pieces of armor to put on, he says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, to the end of prayer, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication. That just means request, asking for all the saints. And also for me, that my words that may be given to me as I open my mouth may boldly proclaim the mystery of our gospel, for which I am an ambassador and am in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for me, pray for Brian, that we would be bold in our speech. That we would be bold in our gospel proclamations. Be bold in the way we handle ourselves out in the world in the various arenas that we find ourselves in life. May we be examples of the Lord Jesus Christ even when we're not around other Christians and the temptation is to not act like Christians. The temptation might be to conform to the world and get into the flow of the other people who are around us at any given time. Pray for us. Pray for us so that we, for we are sure we have a clear conscience and desiring to act honorably in all things. I do have a clear conscience. There have been times where I look back in my ministry and I have been under other people or around other people and have been nudged in certain directions and said things that I really do regret and preached things out of the word that I knew weren't completely accurate and right. And I've been grieved over those times and have repented over those times. But as I stand here and as we've gone through, you know, the the book of Hebrews and even before that through the book of Mark and through before that, you know, through all of the things and studies that we've done, I do want to act honorably in all things, and I do believe that I have a clear conscience in this. This is a weird sermon, I'm going to be honest. I don't like talking about myself at all. I want to point you to Jesus and get you ready to meet him. But this is the text that we're in. But it should encourage you that I do have a clear conscience in the way that we're doing ministry here. I think we're doing it as rightly as we can with what we've been given. Right? We all kind of cringe a little at the trappings of the room. But I mean, in terms of what we do, in terms of worshiping God, I think that we are acting honorably in all things that we do. It would be easy for the Hebrew believers to kind of think otherwise of the, the writer of the book of Hebrews or the other leadership within the church because they're getting very in the face of the Hebrew believers, right? We've seen times where he is warning them, If you don't stop doing what you're doing, you will go to hell. Not in those exact words, but that's exactly what he means by the words that he says. That's not easy to say. 
It's not easy to hear, I grant, but it's not easy to say either. So at the end of this whole epistle, what he is saying, the writer of Hebrews is, I have a clear conscience in the things that I've told you. I haven't been overly heavy-handed, and I haven't held anything back. I've said it as best as I think I possibly can in an honorable way that honors both Christ and you as the listener. You have to understand, if he's writing this harsh book to these people, he loves them. He loves them. There's no whiff of him beating them down or lording it over them like the book of Peter says. He truly cares for their souls. If he's willing to go this far, jeopardize his relationship with them so that they would be more prepared to stick to it, to keep on keeping on, to follow Christ. And then he ends our text tonight. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. I have no idea what that means. Just going to be honest. The commentaries I read have speculation and a bunch of speculation. Is this Paul and he's in jail and wants to be restored? Well, he clearly says something along those lines in the book of Ephesians, but a lot of people aren't sure Paul wrote this book. It's Luke and and he's a a Greek speaker. He's a Gentile and, and this is a harsh message and he didn't attach his name to the book, you know, so that they would actually receive it. But he wants to be restored to them and he wants there to be mutual benefit. Maybe. The bottom line is we don't know. We don't know what's going on here. We don't know why he says this, but what we do know is that the original readers of the Hebrews would have understood exactly what he was saying. And that's really what matters at this particular point. In fact, that's encouraging that there's a little personal note in the middle of this that we, don't, we aren't privy to, that we don't you know, completely understand. I, I know with you know, most of you here in the room that I could say little certain things and, and they'll mean certain little things just to you. And maybe not to everybody else in the room. And that's, of course, to one degree or more, depending upon how long I've known you and how deep our relationship is with one another. Some people I can just give a look. I think Brian is a good example. I can sometimes just give him a little look and he knows what I'm thinking and saying. But we've been friends for a long, long time, you know. But as we end this, He urges them to do this more earnestly in order that he may be restored. Whatever this being restored means, what it does mean is he's asking and begging for them to do this more earnestly. So I am encouraged when I ask and I beg you to pray for me, that you would do that. So the takeaway from today, two things, two big takeaways for you here in this text. One is that, We have your best interest in mind because we're preparing you to meet Jesus. So in that light, your obedience and submission to what me and Brian are saying and doing is wise and apropos. Number two, the takeaway is that you should be people of prayer as best you can. Don't don't think I got to be Billy Graham and pray four hours every morning before the break of dawn kind of thing, right? Right? I don't know if he actually did that. I just, I don't know why that came to my mind, but 
Anyways, we all know these things, these big, magnificent giants and titans of prayer. No, you don't have to be that. But you do need to be purposeful in it. And even if it's just eight minutes while you're waiting for the bus to arrive, or if it's just three minutes that you have before you think the kid might wake up in the morning, or it's 17 minutes as you're driving in your car on your way to wherever it is you're going, instead of turning the radio on, just pray. But be purposeful in it. Because all in all, what matters is Jesus Christ. And we want to preach to you Jesus Christ the best we can. We want you to be formed into his image. We want you to love him more and see him for the glorious, wonderful Savior that he is. So as we worship Jesus Christ and we love him, that we are becoming more like him each and every time we gather together. Amen. Father God, we praise you for the words that you've given to us here in your book and how they do help us and shape us and form us, make us more like you. And as we read a passage like this, and Lord, you know, it's hard for me to preach like this. But thank you, Lord, for giving me the words to say. And I pray that you gave us all ears to hear so that as we do leave here, Lord, what we are is more in love with you than we were when we came in. Because that's our goal. We just want to love you, Jesus. We just want to grow in your likeness more and more and more and more. So as we sing and as we partake of communion, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and do that work of shaping us and molding us to be like you. Thank you, Lord. In your name, amen.